Are you passionate about creating a physical product, something you can touch, feel, or taste, and then get paid for it by those that love what you've created? Well, the Product Launch Rebel Podcast is the one for you, where you get insider tips on how to spot an opportunity, manufacture your product, get financing, and achieve the independence you've always dreamed about. It's time to crank it up with your host, product developer, investor, and founder of VentureSuperfly.com, John Benzik. Greetings, 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 Product Launch Rebels, and welcome once again to the Product Launch Rebel podcast. I'm your host, John Benzik from VentureSuperfly.com, where we help double your entrepreneurial courage, even if you don't know what you're doing. Make sure you check out our website. Today, I'm interviewing Zach Pashik. He's the founder of Detroit Bikes, a bicycle brand based in, well, Detroit. Zach is a Canadian who started the company in 2012. He was born in Calgary, Alberta, and moved to Detroit to launch Detroit Bikes. His previous career includes being a drummer musician, a radio DJ, a club owner, and a music festival founder. Be sure to check out the Detroit Bikes website for more information at DetroitBikes.com. Hello, Zach, and thanks for taking the time. I'm super stoked that you're here, and welcome to the Product Launch Rebel podcast. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. Terrific. So, Zach, within this podcast, there are three segments. The first is called Give Me the Basics, which helps set the context about your company for our listeners. The second part is the Let's Get Personal piece, where we get into some of the more personal topics about what it's like to start a business. And the final part is what I call Tell Me How, where we'll get to the heart of the matter on issues that aspiring entrepreneurs want to know now to help them move forward. Zach, what do you think? Are you ready for some questions? I think so. Let's go. All right. Zach, so you're being from Calgary. What brought you to Detroit in the first place? I got very interested in cities when I was in Calgary. Partly, I was pretty involved in my city with my music venue that I ran and the festival I started. And I ended up running for city council. My family sort of political. My father was in politics back in, in Alberta as well. And so just got really interested in cities, what made cities successful. I like to look at different policy approaches that different cities were taking when I traveled and see how that had an impact on the ground in those cities. And so I uh, just became very fascinated with Detroit. It's a it's an incredible city with a great history that's obviously been through uh, some real challenges um, for a number of different reasons. And it's you know currently to me it's the most exciting city in North America because there's just so much going on here right now as um, sort of this reurbanization takes place and Detroit sort of seems to be on the forefront of that. Gosh, it's very exciting. I've never been to Detroit. I've always wanted to go there, especially because of the creative energy that you're talking about and the great history of Detroit. Zach, tell us the story. How did you originally come up with the Detroit Bikes business idea? Well, I needed a reason to be in Detroit. So my background is sort of more the music business side, and then I was trying to get out of that and get more involved politically. But in order for a Canadian to move to the United States, you need either a job here or to be going to school or, you know, in some cases you can start a business. So I knew I wanted to start a business and I wanted to be part of this sort of creative resurgence here in the city. Uh, I wanted to sort of have a chip on the table of what was going on here, so to speak. And so I thought about 
you know, in conjunction with this idea that cities are changing and that I'm interested in how cities are changing, uh, one of the ways cities are changing is in how people get around them. We've been for a long time building cities as though everyone would drive everywhere in a car that they owned by themselves. And we're really seeing that that's starting to change, especially younger people are not really flocking to the automobile as rapidly as previous generations had. It's a very expensive way to get around. It's a really big machine that's very complicated, requires a lot of inputs, you know, a lot of insurance, parking, gas, repairs, etc. So it's just a really kind of a not super functional way for everybody to get around. So part of this sort of reurbanization that I touched on in the previous question is about how how people are, are changing how they move around. So bikes, to me, are going to be an important part of that. And and for me, it's not that I'm 100% about bikes. I'm sort of just 100% about cities. And so the the part that I sort of chose as a way I could be more involved happens to be bikes. But you sometimes see people who are you know very politically like it's bikes or nothing. And that's not me so much. I just think that we need more options, more balance for people. So in, in my part of that is that I wanted to um, be involved in making a bike that was really super functional for people and just really easy to approach and fun to use, something you'd want to use every day. So thinking about starting a business in Detroit, I was already kind of thinking about bikes and urbanization. And then Detroit is, uh, you know, this incredible place that has had such a huge impact in the world on a number of different fronts, you know, particularly musically, but also uh, mechanically. And so I wanted to think of something that fit in well with the skill set of the people of Detroit, what would be kind of a job that could, or a, a business that could grow quite a bit. So, you know, the bar business, you're kind of contained within that one building that you're in, and you can do some pretty cool stuff out of a bar, as I was able to do in Calgary, you know, even leading that, spinning that into this festival. That said, it's still somewhat limited in that area. So I thought Detroit Bikes starting a bicycle manufacturing business in the States and, and really trying to, to flesh out if it is indeed possible to manufacture commercial goods in the United States you know, at scale and have that be successful in a story that people are interested in uh, you know, could be something that could have the potential at least to grow you know, and, and maybe have a good impact further in Detroit by, by being a, a real job creator here. So just try to think of something that could you know, have, the, have the best potential to have an impact and, uh, and some growth. Zach, that's really fascinating how you brought that perspective to eventually leading to the production, the creation of a bike company. What's unique about Detroit bikes? A lot of people don't know that the company that they buy their products from often doesn't make that product. It's a very weird thing. And, you know, I kind of knew a bit about that, but didn't really put it together until I got really more involved in this. But when you're walking through, you know, a store, and you see that this is this brand on this product, it's not really how things work anymore. The, the company goes out and finds somebody to make that product for them, and they focus on the label design and the advertising and the distribution channel, typically. So companies aren't really connected to production anymore. And so what makes Detroit Bikes very different from other companies, no American brand is manufacturing their own bicycles, not one, uh, other than Detroit Bikes. I should step back. There are American 
bike companies that are very small, but no brand you would see for sale in a bike store typically. The, the, the bikes that you get that are American made are made by usually individuals. They're very high end and they're made sort of custom for people, but n- none of the known American brands are actually making bicycles. So it's this, it's this strange disconnect. They're all kind of typically, uh, you know, they'll, they'll come from even the same factories in China. So, you know, one brand will, will call it X bicycle and one will call it Y bicycle. But at the end of the day, that's the same bicycle. They've just, they've just both have different company names. So I, you know, I set out to do something a little more, you know, with a different approach to it that was sort of more like a 1930s kind of company approach. There's a reason companies don't do it that way anymore. It's, it makes a lot of sense not to make your own stuff. There's other companies who typically are going to be better at it. And scaling up to be able to produce your own stuff is super expensive and there's a lot to learn. So foolhardily, I just, you know, my mandate was I wanted to create a lot of jobs in Detroit and be part of the story here and, you know, have these bikes really have that Detroit kind of soul to them by being actually made here by people here, by coming out of this, you know, this area, this region. So for me, my mandate was a little different, and uh, it led to me starting a company that actually is is, is manufacturing. So we've got the biggest uh, bicycle factory in the United States, really the only large-scale bike factory in the United States, uh, where we make frames. We buy American steel, and we uh, you know we buy it in, in tube form, and we take it from there, put it through all the different uh, processes it needs to go through to become pieces of a bike frame we weld it together we paint it in-house we do wheel building in-house we do various sub assemblies assemble the bike together and uh, package it and ship it all from our from our factory in detroit terrific and who do you sell to now the types of retailers so we currently sell to different what are called ibds which stands for independent bicycle dealer Um, so bikes are a little bit different uh, as far as retail goes because you need good mechanics to put a bike together bikes aren't shipped fully assembled so it's this kind of interesting nuance to the bike industry that uh, you need a bike mechanic who's skilled to be able to put the thing together and i think that has largely allowed for more independent operators you don't see a lot of you know independent bookstores anymore it's more kind of chains same with you know frozen yogurt stores or whatever you know they're they typically are chains whereas bikes are a little different it's a lot of um it's a lot of independent shops and so where we typically sell our bikes through are these different uh, IBDs. And then we also, there's sort of two faces. So there's the IBD side, which typically tells, sells a higher quality product. And then you've got the mass market bike retailers that, that typically aren't as concerned with the quality of the product. It's more, I think anyways, that those bikes are more sort of kind of all driven by price and not really intended to be something that you'd really necessarily use every day. So there's a lot of cheats that, that happen in order to get the prices down that low that make the bike, you know, at the end of the day, not as functional. Describe the number of products you have right now. Currently, we have, I think it's about four or five different lines. We're just releasing our 2017 bikes. We, we started very simply with just a bike called the A-Type. And we added on the B-Type, which is a step-through version, which means that you can, you can step on and off the bike a little more easily. We added the C-Type which is more of a traditional road bike frame style. And then we're now just adding new models like the Cortello, which is a hybrid fitness bike, sort of a bike you take out on the trails. We've got a couple new bikes that will be coming out as the year uh, goes on as well. But we we try to keep it as simple as possible for people. And my focus is really always just on the A-type, the original bike we make. 
I'm trying to make a bike that's kind of all you need. It's just a simple, durable, fun bike that you can use every day. How many employees did you start with perhaps in that first six to 12 months? And how many employees do you have now? So it's gone up and down our employee count over the years. It started with just one employee for quite a while, just doing some research and trying to figure out how to how to really get started on all this. At our peak, we got up to 50 employees. That was last summer. We were running an assembly line for a big bike share provider while producing uh, a large number of custom bikes for a brewery. So we had 50 employees at that point, and then the order from the bike share provider wasn't continued, so we had to lay some people off and actually scaled back down to around 10. And then this summer, we're back into back into full tilt production, but we've only hired back up to 30. So we're, we're at 30 right now. It's sort of stops and starts in terms of when we get these big orders. And I can explain that more, I guess, when we talk about the, the how part of the company. Zach, most entrepreneurs go into business with a set of assumptions, and many of those assumptions prove to be different from what they expected, thereby making them scramble to make changes in order to survive. Regarding Detroit Bikes' uniqueness, did your original assumption about that uniqueness prove motivating to consumers and to retailers for that matter? Or did you discover a slightly different selling proposition after being in business for a while and getting some customer feedback? Yeah, absolutely. What I learned was that American consumers don't typically really care where their stuff is made at the end of the day. So price is really the primary concern for most people who are buying stuff. And there's also a lot of confusion as to whether or not some, something is made there or not. You know, there's a company called Brooklyn Bicycle Company. And on the surface, you know, you would think Detroit Bikes or Brooklyn Bicycle Company, you know, it's all just a brand. It's it really hard for us to drive that story to people and to explain how we're different. And then, you know, even during that process of trying to explain it, you kind of lose people's focus and they, they sort of kind of wander away anyways. So I learned that, um, you know, my assumption was that an American-made product would just explode. It would blow people's minds. They'd be so excited that we were making these things here for the price points that we're hitting uh, that we would just have sort of this this wild interest. Plus, you know, coupled with this story of the revival of Detroit and, you know, just all the national interest in this city particularly, you know, I thought we'd have a, a bit of an easier path and, you know, quickly learned that there are many customers who really like that and they're into sort of the brand but the bike industry what i what i've learned is that brands don't really matter in the bike industry there's no real strong brands and i think that's because the brands are a little bit diluted so if you think of a big bike brand you know they all kind of offer 2000 different products and they all kind of overlap so no one there's no like there's not a lot of brand loyalty or even brand consideration in bikes i think that's cuz manufacturing's all pretty much done overseas uh, and you know there's a lot of similarity in products that are offered so there's no real reason to have any sort of brand interest so within that we it's a little bit tricky to to push the brand and then I've also realized that our customer isn't who I thought it was which is a huge thing to learn just in terms of the distribution process we're not selling bikes to the final customer I've learned what we're selling bikes to is the shop owner so whereas the final customer might say, look, I don't want to learn all that stuff about bikes. Just give me a good bike that's cool, that has a good price point. And, that, and they really love Detroit bikes. So we've had wonderful customer feedback from people who bought our bikes. They're very proud to you know, be part of the story and they really get it. But the shop owners, I've learned, who are our actual customer because they need to buy the bikes before they're going to turn around and sell them to a customer. 
Shop owners are very different. Shop owners care about price before anything else, and they really care about the technical ins and outs of a bike and sort of the like the cool stuff happening in the bike industry that your average customer doesn't really care about or need to care about. So our bikes don't really appeal to the bike store owner at all because I'm making a bike that's very purposefully, very purposefully rejects all of those trends in the bike industry. I'm trying to make a bike that deflates all that pressure that says, no, you don't need a mountain bike. You don't need an expensive racing bike. You don't need a carbon fiber bike. You just need a nice durable bike that you're going to want to use every day. So, you know, th- that's, that's a challenge trying to figure out how to make a product that at the end of the day, I think is really good that I think is the right thing, but knowing that my distribution channel and I disagree on that. So, so having to try to figure that out is a little uh, challenging, but what it has done is it's opened up new opportunities for Detroit bikes because while the brand is trying to figure out its path to get into customers' hands more directly, you know, trying to find those handful of shops that kind of get it and are on the same page with us. In the meantime, I still have all this capacity, all this production capacity. And what I've found is that there are actually a number of companies that can really benefit from that. So that's where the bike share uh, contract comes in, and that's where the contract for custom manufacturing for the brewery comes in. Our first big order was for New Belgium Brewery. They ordered 2,500 bikes from us of their own custom design. And so for them, American-made really does matter. They're what's called a triple B corp. No, a B corp. New Belgium is a B Corp, and that means that they need to um, purchase things, you know, responsibly. So they're very concerned with the origin of the products they buy and sort of the ethics behind the products that they buy. Um, so for them, made in the U.S. is a really big deal. So they they're a customer that really you know wanted wanted an American-made bike, and we collaborated on a bike design with them. Produced those bikes for them last year. They've reordered this year. We're just shipping their 2017 bikes now. And then also there was this company called Motivate, based out of New York. They run the New York City Bike Share Program and a number of other large city bike share programs. And they really needed some help in terms of figuring out how to produce a bike that would be as durable as possible for bike share, and then how to actually get that bike assembled here in the U.S., um, because it ended up saving them quite a bit of money and um, solved quite a number of headaches for them to have some domestic production capacity. So so those are two areas where we found, you know, it's I, I had thought the brand would sort of be driving things, but it turns out that actually right now, financially, the factory is what's driving things just because we built up this this huge capacity to support our own brand. But as the brand grows, we still have that capacity, so we're able to extend it to other companies. Zach, regarding the contrasting point of view that you have with your retail customers, they being high-tech and you being sort of a low-tech mindset, what sort of pressure did that cause you to consider abandoning the low-tech approach? Well, that's a very good question. And I ask that because I had a snowboard and ski clothing brand, and I had a unique point of difference, a very unique point of difference on my product as well. And of course, it was making sales, but when you're building a brand, it never moves as fast as you want it to. So you've got this sort of traditional rejection from non-progressive retailers. And I recall that forcing me into a decision whether I wanted to blend in with the crowd or if I wanted to maintain my difference. And that's why I sort of ask that, because I think a lot of aspiring entrepreneurs or new entrepreneurs face those key types of decisions. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of pressure to be the same as the other companies. And I think that's kind of the same in life anywhere. If you were, gosh, to take it back to my previous kind of career, if you started a band and 
you know, you decided you were going to, I don't know, put, put like a bubble machine in the middle and have the drummer in the front and the singer in the back or something, you know, people would look at you and say like, what the heck are you doing? This is the wrong way to do it. Um, you shouldn't do it that way. And probably you'd have a really hard time getting started because of that. But maybe down the road, you'd be really celebrated for being that band that figured out that it's fun to put the drummer in the front or whatever. You know, I'm just kind of making this up as I go. Right. The point is that if it just looks a little different to people, you're, you really have to stick with it or decide what you want to do. Maybe maybe you make some compromises. So, you know, there are compromises that I'm, I have made and that I am making for Detroit Bikes. One of those compromises is that we're in talks with a major national retailer to carry our brand. But in order to be even in the conversation with a major national retailer, your prices have to be quite low. So we're going to be starting a line called Detroit Bikes Assembly, where we're going to buy the frames from China. We're still going to put them together in our factory in the U.S., but it'll be a Chinese frame and a product called Detroit Bikes, which is quite a conflict. You know, it was a difficult thing for me to rationalize. Sure. That said, every other bike in that store is entirely made in China. So the Detroit Bikes bike will still have more American content than any other bike on their floor. And the thing that I'm trying to think of is, hey, I need my business to survive. If we can get into a national chain, that'll be another 100 jobs possibly you know, here in Detroit for people. And we'll be changing the way that the industry looks at things because we'll be you know, at least introducing U.S. assembly. Uh, you know, to a major channel. So, um, you know, definitely there are compromises to make and it's, it's a real wrestling match, you know, to figure out when to make them and and when not to. I, I remember opening my first bar and at first I really, you know, I was pretty young and uh, I really listened to customers and it took me maybe f- three or four years to realize like, you know, it's actually my bar and people are going to come to it because they like what I'm doing and the person who comes in and says like, Hey, you need gluten free wine or whatever, you know, they can come in and tell you that and you can go get it and they'll probably never come back and no one's going to come to your place because you got gluten free wine or what, you know, whatever someone else told you was their vision. There's a reason you're the, you're the bar owner and you know, you select the products and people are going to come cause they like what you've done. And so same with the bike company to some degree, I've got to, you know, make some compromises. I realize, you know, my vision was that while we needed to make was one bike and if 85% of people could, fit on that bike, that's good enough. The store owners really push back against that concept. You know, they they do not want to carry your line unless you have a complete line. They want you to have different sizes, different colors, and a few different models. And so we're doing that now. Now we have different sizes, different colors, and a few different models. And, and you know, I've tried to do it in a way where we're still maintaining a bit of our true selves and just being keeping it as simple as possible, but, you know, also understanding that, you know, store owners just do not get behind the idea that if someone wants a Detroit bike, you, you need to fit that person. My, my take on it is, to me, it's like a food truck. If a food truck makes a really good hamburger, my take is that you should just make that hamburger. People who want a really good hamburger will come to your food truck. And so that's what I was trying to do with bikes a little bit. Like, just do one thing really well. You know, one thing that's going to fit a lot of people who want that thing. But the bike stores aren't like that, you know. And it's So it's like, uh, so I'm mixing a lot of metaphors here, but Bear with me. Um, so it would be like at the bar in Calgary that I had, if, if on the menu, I knew we could just make burgers really well, and we just served burgers, but someone came in and said, hey, I, I wish you had tacos. And so we, we started putting tacos and burgers and then kind of kept adding on to it. That's, that's what the, the bike retailer wants from us. They're the customer who comes in and says, hey, no, I'm not going to buy your burger unless you also have tacos. 
And because every other place has burgers and tacos, so now I'll carry you. I'll only carry you if you do it like everyone else does. And it's super frustrating because um, I don't think that they're correct on that. I don't think their customers care. I think their if their customer wants a bike for someone who's four foot five, they can go to a bike brand that makes really good bikes for someone who's four foot five. In my opinion, there's no need for Detroit bikes to offer that. But what I'm finding, and you know, this is just sort of one example of of a number of kind of compromises that you know I'm faced with. I'm finding that the bike stores are saying like, no, you need you need to offer an, a number of different sizes that fit this range of riders. And so we're starting to you know we're starting to make certain compromises. And I think a lot of aspiring entrepreneurs aren't really aware of that retailer demand of wanting a broader product line, whether it be bicycles or yogurt or you name it. Yeah, and, and just that they they have their vision for how things are supposed to be done, and you'll have a very hard time unless you just fit into that. And it's almost kind of robotic. You know, I think people I, I sympathize with the people running the bike shops. I mean, I may sound sort of confrontational at times because it's frustrating, but I, I get where they're coming from. I mean, they've been doing it for fifteen or twenty years, and they you know they they know what works. They they're struggling often. You know, bike shops aren't exactly the most lucrative businesses, and so they just they don't want to just take kind of risks and they don't want to do things differently. And to some extent with our product too, I sort of have another sort of weird food analogy for you. Hopefully your listeners find it somewhat interesting, but so I, I've tried to explain it to people before. It would be like if you owned a convenience store, you know, and you sell milk and you order milk from your milk distributor and it comes in a box and it looks like what it's supposed to look like. And then one day somebody showed up and said, you know, hey, try this. I've got this glass jar. It's got the best milk in it. It's from this cow that I've got behind my house. I think you should sell this milk. And, you know, the milk was definitely delicious, you know, way better than the milk in those cartons and the boxes. But you know that that convenience store owner is not going to just say, yeah, okay, I'll sell your better milk. You know, even if the milk was cheaper and you knew people liked that milk, you know, it was, it's just it's just weird for them. There's just something weird about it because it's it's being done differently. Because like I had sort of outlined before, because we're really hand making them. You know, we're we're doing this in a way that the industry just does not operate. And so for a lot of people, it's just like there's something kind of something too weird about it for now at least. So Zach, let's get personal on a few topics. Many aspiring entrepreneurs don't know what they don't know before starting a business. They're sort of unconsciously incompetent in certain areas, not as fully prepared as they thought they would be in starting a business. Before you started Detroit Bikes, to what extent were your previous career skills and your knowledge aligned with your task of launching a bicycle manufacturer and a brand? So, for example, on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being very aligned, how did your previous skills and knowledge fit with your new startup? My skills and knowledge really were sort of more about finding good people, making a good team, making sure that the team felt empowered to make their own decisions, and then setting them to work. So I feel like that skill aligns quite well. Um, in terms of the technical side of it, I you know, I wasn't a great bartender when I owned a bar and I, you know, I'm not a good accountant and I haven't been for any of these businesses. Um, so, you know, I've approached the businesses from a different perspective. I've approached them from how do I have an impact in my city? What can I do to have a really interesting impact? And I think they've been really successful on that front, but my approach hasn't been, 
hey, what's going to make me the most money possible? And I've been, you know, very lucky in my life, that, you know, that that wasn't the first and foremost thing that I had to think about with these businesses, that I was able to approach it from a different way. So I'm not saying that that's for everybody, but that's, that's how I've, that's how I've sort of approached them. And so, you know, in, in that regard, I think that there, there is a bit of a actual linear progression from, from bar ownership and festivals to, to the bike business, even though it might not um, fully seem that way at, at first. What's the number one lesson that you've learned since starting Detroit Bikes? Well, and so to talk, you know, to the previous uh, point about sort of um, unknown incompetence, uh, you know, really it was it was figuring out that distribution channel where I was spending my time trying to figure out what's the right way to approach a bicycle. You know, what should a bicycle be? What is the ideal of a bicycle for a an adult who wants a product for an adult and who just wants to get around a city, you know, without having to know a bunch of stuff or worrying about locking up their bike, just, you know, a good, simple product. So I really focused on the product side. And now I think that if I were a wiser person back then, in terms of just the viability of this company, I would have focused a lot more on the distribution side and the sales side. And I would have figured out, okay, so it's not, there's a reason, there's got to be some reason why there's so many bad bikes being sold to Americans. So many bikes that will fall apart right after you ride them the first time. Or bikes that are just super expensive that are way beyond what you actually need. There's got to be a reason for this. And I, and I probably should have paid a bit more attention to that and tried to, tried to really understand how to break through that more cleanly than just thinking that a good product alone could do it. Um, because that, that's really the difference. You know, it's, it's not the product. It's the pathway to getting to the consumer that's the thing to really spend your time figuring out, I think. It seems that 99 out of 100 people just talk about starting a business, but they never start one. Starting a business is pretty unusual. What motivates a person like you, Zach Pashik, to stop just talking about launching a business and actually go out and start a bicycle company? So this is going to be a bit of a weird answer. Hopefully it doesn't make people too uncomfortable. But uh, I would say, you know, a healthy fear of death probably would be the answer to that. You know, just just knowing that life is really short and, you know, I don't want to have it pass me by. I, I, I want to act as though I may not be here next week. And so I, I just don't like living and pressing pause on anything. I, you know, I, I, w- I wake up every morning and, and want to move want to move the ball forward. So that's why I, I, I like to kind of get in there and get things going. That's a very insightful answer and actually one that I philosophically agree to and would often share with people as well. Do you think you're a creator at heart? Oh, definitely. I, I, um, that's sort of a, a psychological sort of question because I think a creator also has to have a little like destructive kind of balance inside of them too. But but certainly, I, I love to start things and see things grow and change. I love to to kind of sit back and see the impact that little ideas can have and, and what they can kind of impact uh, beyond their immediate sphere. And then in terms of just pra- practical day-to-day stuff, I mean, there's nothing I love more than, you know, gardening and planting plants and seeing, you know, seeing trees grow bigger that I planted five years ago. And, you know, it's... Uh, that's something very enjoyable and satisfying for me as a person. 
Regarding Detroit Bikes, what has been your biggest joy in starting that company? One of the biggest joys for me was noticing that people were walking to work in this neighborhood on you know the far west side of Detroit that is a really rough rundown neighborhood but full of some incredibly good people and you know a handful of people who probably aren't so good too you know for whatever reason but uh, but a, but a number of just great people and it's it's a neighborhood that needs you know all, all of America needs to know what happened in Detroit and what's currently happening and you know the good and bad of, of those things and so for me having this business that was you know that is making a product that the people who are involved in the production of that product are so proud of and that they're actually, you know, that it's really in that neighborhood is really cause of great joy for me. I, I find that uh, I find that quite thrilling, actually. Zach, many entrepreneurs, even seasoned ones, experience self-doubt as they go along their entrepreneurial journey. How much self-doubt have you had, if any, and what have you done to deal with it? I have had a lot of self-doubt, and there are you know, a number of different reasons for it. One is, you know, leaving a, a pretty interesting life back home. Uh, you know, now Detroit is home, but but from my former home, that that led to some kind of resentment and some anger of people, you know, who I used to, you know, spend more time with. So that, that helped really lead to some self-doubt, you know, just trying to process some of the, you know, the negative reaction to, to me leaving somewhere. And, and starting to do something somewhere else, and then and then it's just really difficult. I mean, I you know I was sort of even though I was young when I left Canada, you know, relatively young, I was pretty established. I had, you know, I could probably call a meeting with with most people in the city I lived in, and, and they would probably take that meeting and treat me with a certain degree of, I guess, understanding or you know, knowledge of what I've what I've been up to. And uh, so moving to Detroit, you know, that was completely erased. I moved here as an anonymous person, and it was very interesting and kind of challenging to just not have any of those those things that I used to have and have to kind of rebuild everything, you know. And also career-wise, I haven't, I didn't spend the the really good energetic years of my twenties making connections in the bike industry. No, nobody in the bike industry really knows who I am, and uh, so having to kind of figure out what that was all about and you know where it was important for people to know who I was and where it didn't really matter you know that's kind of can be a cause for some self-doubt too I guess just because you can kind of I guess you can kind of build your own self-worth based on the reflection of yourself you see in others and so when others think you're just you know some guy who's never done anything who showed up from Canada you know you can maybe start to believe that about yourself too so it was just sort of you know plugging through that and you know, it really forced me to really truly believe in myself in a way that I maybe hadn't as much before because I was sort of backing it up with other people's perception of me. This really forced me to really reflect on my own kind of person and, and my own value of myself. And related to that, starting Detroit Bikes obviously was is pretty challenging. How has starting that business changed you as a person, if at all? I know that I have changed a lot as a person, and part of it would be starting Detroit Bikes. Part of it would be this move, you know, rebuilding, starting a new life in a new country. The Detroit Bikes part, you know, just in terms, like in a very practical, hands-on way, has gotten me far more comfortable using tools than I used to be. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I'm someone who took home ec in high school. I didn't take shop. 
I'm not particularly handy or haven't been. And I'm far more comfortable with tools and, you know, mechanical things now than I was before. I'm still by no means a great mechanic, but I've, I've learned a heck of a lot more on that front. And I'm just, you know, I've learned a lot more in general. I, there's a lot more areas that I've touched because of this job than, than I had been involved in in previous things. But then there's a lot of interesting overlap as well. You know, same way to deal with a lawyer and same, you know, accounting and same setting up a corporate structure and hiring and firing and interpersonal stuff and, you know, building a brand, networking, social media, you know, all that stuff. There's, there's those crossovers are somewhat consistent. And how about more in general of moving to Detroit? How has that changed you in starting sort of from scratch? Well, it, it's been really nice for me. I feel I'm a little more, it's more about myself. So instead of worrying about other people or even like, you know, family pressures and things like that, it's it's just sort of, it's more clean and I feel sort of much more confident here by having clarity of just being sort of able to to set things forward just kind of on my own. What do you think you've learned most about yourself since being in Detroit? It's, I don't know if it's learning about myself or just being more confident in myself. I feel like I was sort of lacking a confidence before. I think the music industry has a lot of people who really lack confidence and really sort of need people to applaud for them and, and just need to be loved really, really like it's quite transparent how much they really need that. And, uh, you know, getting out of that was really nice and getting out of that mindset too of, you know, it, like it doesn't really matter what a big group of people think about you. It's, it's really just more important that you've got some good, healthy friends who are good people, uh, who you really do like and uh, a bit of a sense of family. Learning how to be more of an individual and less part of like sort of a more public or larger group kind of thing. So, Zach, here we are in the Tell Me How segment of the podcast, where we aim to get to the heart of the matter regarding key issues for aspiring entrepreneurs. Zach, let's talk about raising capital. Did you originally raise money for Detroit Bikes? I raised a little bit of money from one investor, and the rest has just been self-funded and from some family help with that as well. How did you approach that one investor? So the one investor was a, a very is a, still is involved. He's a very interesting man, um, sort of a global figure, and he was interested in Detroit. He's originally from here, and had moved on and lived in various different countries and different states, but was interested in refocusing on Detroit and was particularly particularly interested in a technology company here called Loveland. And my friend Jerry uh, is the principal uh, founder, he and his partner, Mary, of Loveland. And so Jerry introduced me to this this person, his name's Bernie. And uh, I you know, had a, a couple of meetings with Bernie. I, he lived in Moscow at the time. I happened to be going to Moscow. So I met with him there and, you know, developed a friendship. And he, he was interested in investing in Detroit businesses, and, and uh, so he, he put some money into, into this one. Let's talk a little bit more, Zach, about selling the product to retailers. You talked about the challenge of that. Can you describe some of those early mistakes that you made that might be valuable to listeners? 
Well, it's, yeah, it's, it's a real question. You know, it, was it a mistake or not? It, you know, if my end goal was just to sell as many bikes as possible, then the original sin of Detroit bikes was making them here. You know, if I just wanted to sell as many bikes as possible, I should have done what other companies do. And I should have just found a Chinese manufacturer, uh, gotten a cool product made, done some research into what would be a good brand, uh, researched the distribution channels, made sure to go to some shows and meet some buyers and figure out what they want. And, and just produce what, what they wanted and, uh, you know, build a brand that way. So, you know, the big mistake was to say, well, we're just going to do things completely differently. I'm going to disregard all current business <laughs> logic and intelligence. And, and I'm also not really going to pay much attention to what the retailers themselves are saying because I don't think they know what they're talking about. So, you know, it was a very cocky, very aggressive move, the, you know, the way that I started this company. But on the other side, it was also very sincere and very heartfelt. So I started, you know, the company for for very different reasons than uh, than just trying to figure out how to sell as many bikes as possible. So it's, you know, I I guess there was a mistake would be a little too much faith in the product, being able to kind of by its own momentum, just penetrate those distribution channels, uh, despite being done in a very different and unusual way. So you know. You can't. It needs to be balanced. So probably, if I'd made a few more compromises early on, and maybe been a little bit less brash about it, and and maybe done a little bit more research. Although at the time I didn't, you know, it's one of those things I didn't know that I had to research it, so it would have been hard to figure out to do so. Let's talk a little bit about creating awareness and demand. It's very challenging for startups to have large marketing budgets, and they often have zero marketing budgets. How did you or how are you creating consumer awareness and demand for your product? So the Detroit part of Detroit Bikes was supposed to really be the driver of that consumer interest and demand. And really it was supposed to have a lot of baked in marketing value because the city of Detroit is its own brand that's already been marketed to people. People know what they're getting with Detroit. You know, they know the Tigers and Magnum P.I. and Motown music and, you know, Aretha Franklin and even the riots and the toughness of the city in the Midwest and, uh, you know, all the rest of it. So there's a lot of really great value in just making this product here and being really proud that we make this product here and then being part of that resurgent story. But where that was a bit of a, that got caught up a little bit was right as that made a ton of sense to me and I moved here and started this company and called it Detroit Bikes uh, that was right around the time that that Super Bowl ad with Eminem came out, and it was like imported from Detroit, and it was so smart that Chrysler ad, and it really like really kicked that whole notion into hyperdrive, and then a bunch of other companies came here and started like Detroit blank company, so there, uh, I think I think the Detroit part still has been really effective for Detroit bikes. I mean, we've been written about in the New Yorker and Bloomberg and Fortune and a bunch of great publications. Um, and I think that that wouldn't, you know, probably wouldn't have happened if it was Pittsburgh bikes. I, I don't think it would have. But at the same time, there was it was also kind of almost too good because it also spawned these other companies that came here and in some cases aren't even making the products here, but they still write Detroit on it and are really trying to market or, you know, capitalize on this kind of interest in the city. So it's kind of been good and bad, mostly, mostly good. Finally, Zach, did I miss any questions that you feel like you'd like to provide answers to? Or do you have any closing pieces of advice for our aspiring entrepreneur listeners? 
Well, I, I've touched on it a number of times, but just about figuring out that distribution channel. I think it's it depends on what kind of business you're starting. Some of them it'll be more clear than others. I mean, if it's a food truck, your distribution channel is pretty direct. But certainly with the consumer product and you know a brand and and all the rest of the stuff that kind of is baked into Detroit bikes, it would be it just it's really important to really understand how that product gets in front of a consumer, and then what sort of choices they're going to have in front of them when you know, they're considering your product and, and how you can be successful with that and understanding the filters between you and a good product and that end consumer and how some of them will, you know, maybe help you or not help you and, and just to be very aware of that ahead of time. Zach, you've been a fantastic guest offering some great stories and advice to our aspiring entrepreneur listeners. Congratulations on your success, for your entrepreneurial courage, and for sharing your experiences with us. Pleasure. Well, you've just listened to another episode of Product Launch Rebel featuring John Benzik of Venture Superfly. To download episodes of previous shows or for other entrepreneur-related resources, visit VentureSuperfly.com. Be sure to like Venture Superfly on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and subscribe to Product Launch Rebel in iTunes. Join us for our next Product Launch Rebel episode, where we'll continue to reveal insider tips on how to launch and grow your physical product-based business.